So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about um, the concept of God in the Psalms tonight. And then I want to talk about the concept of human beings in the Psalms next week. And then I want to finish this study two weeks from tonight. And we'll talk about how Jesus used the different Psalms. Uh, and then that'll end this study. And then Esty and I are going to be on vacation for a couple of weeks. So we're going to miss three uh, Wednesday night Bible studies, and uh, we'll start something new at the beginning of July when we get back. So that's kind of the plan of action going forward. So, all right, we're going to get started tonight with um, looking at an interesting topic about um, the concept of God in the Psalms. And we're going to look at two Psalms in particular, but I'm going to illustrate uh, a couple of points from some of the different um, Psalms as well. So if you have a Bible handy, uh, we'll get started in a moment looking at some of these. So I want to introduce our thought tonight with this idea of the gods, plural, of the Psalms. Remember when we're talking about the Psalms, it really is a diversity of different uh, poetry that's written by different authors and written in different times. It has different contexts. And I think that carries some weight in understanding what we take away from the Psalms and what we need to be careful of in terms of not imposing too strict of a theology on the Psalter itself. I don't think you'll ever find a uniform or a monolithic uh, theology system from the Psalms, but we can do some takeaways just by what we find in the Psalms. And there's a lot of uh, diversity uh, in between the Psalms in terms of their perspective. And it probably depends upon when it was written and probably depends a little bit upon the editor that brought these books of the Psalter together. So all I'm trying to say is we need to be very careful with the Psalms not to make it fit into a particular theological system. It just doesn't work very well. I know that's a temptation uh, a lot of times in churches is to try to get everything to fit together smoothly. Well, the Psalms are the type of literature that will absolutely drive you crazy if you try to do that. So Thinking about that, what I want to talk about tonight is uh, just the perspective of the psalmist and how they thought about God. So the first thing we're going to see in the Psalms is a representation, not just of one God, but a plurality of gods. When we think about monotheism, I think one of the things that we often uh, monotheism is the belief in one God. When we think about that and we look at the Old Testament, I think we are often uh, often thought, uh, thinking about how the nation of Israel believed in one God from Genesis all the way to the end of the uh, Old Testament. <clears throat> and that's not really accurate. Um, what we have seen as a development and a movement toward monotheism in the Old Testament, but there are different expressions of a belief in different gods uh, that was part of the context and culture of the day. So the worship of the one true God is expected uh, from really Exodus and the giving of the Ten Commandments all the way to the end of the Old Testament. But the worship of the one true God is not the same as the belief in one God. So I want you to take your uh, Bible. I want you to open to Psalm 86. And I'm just going to point out a couple of these uh, that there was a dominant cultural belief in the existence of a plurality of gods. And you'll see this reflected in these writings. So in Psalm 86, if you come down to verse 8, now this is considered to be a psalm of David. When you think about this, if David is the author of this, and remember in our earlier studies, this could be something that's characteristic of David, but not necessarily the author. But if it is David, he's a little bit later in the um 
the development of uh, worshiping of God compared to Exodus and so forth. But here you see, if, uh, if you look at verse 8, the psalmist says, Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. So you'll notice small letter gods. Uh, there's no one like you, O Lord, capital. Uh, so there's this distinction between what is believed to be the most high God versus these other gods. And this is reflected, if you look at some of these other verses here, you'll see this comes out in a variety of different places. In Psalm 95, it says in verse 3, For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods, plural. Now, we might think of gods being something that we give our allegiance to, but in the context of the Psalms, I think it is an actual belief in a variety of different gods. And that is why there's such a temptation, I think, in the Old Testament to worship some of these other gods because it was part of the cultural belief of the time that there was a multitude of gods. So it comes out in Psalm 96. So you're right there. Uh, look, take a look at verse four. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. So here you see this tendency here uh, in this cluster anyways of Psalms in 86 through 97. Uh, this is repeated. Same thing in Psalm 97, verse seven. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. And then in verse nine, for you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Now, we don't think of that too much uh, when we think of, of reading the Psalms on our own. We just kind of pass over that, I think. But if we stop and really contemplate it, I don't think this is an exaggeration. I don't think this is hyperbole. I think there is an actual belief that there are a variety of gods that exist, but the one who delivered them from Egypt is the highest God or the one God that deserves our loyalty and our worship. So what I'm trying to say is these type of verses that are found in the Psalms are not there for dramatic effect. They, I think they give us an insight into the common belief of that day. Now, as you move closer and closer to the New Testament, we see a refining of the belief systems of the ancient Israelites. And by the time you get uh, into what is called Second Temple Judaism, there is an actual belief in one true God, and they've kind of left behind the remnants of their belief in a multitude of gods, but not in the Psalms and certainly not in other places that you find in the Old Testament either. Do you have some thoughts there, comments? Yeah, Larry, I'm not sure I'll necessarily agree with that. They, back when, I th think it was Elijah, not Elisha, when he was um, teasing the God of, or the, the priests of Baal, he was like really making fun, you know, go mm -hmm. see if he's doing something else. Or, I don't think he believed Baal existed. Um, I tend to look at it more like they knew the, the people around them worshipped other gods, but I'm not so sure they looked at them as real. Just I think they looked at them as false gods. And that's a very legitimate uh, viewpoint. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to that as we go forward, because I think, I think some passages of Scripture do not make sense um, without this cultural uh, belief that was common to that day. Now, the... Uh, um, the Elijah story is interesting, and it's one of those things that, again, is seeing a progression, a movement uh, toward 
monotheism um, as the history of Israel uh, moves from its primitive beginnings uh, to through the prophets. Um, and I think you do see a development there, a progress that is being made. But what you'll find is there's some things that don't seem to make, at least in my opinion, don't seem to make a lot of sense if if these are all just fake, that some of the commandments that are given um, on Mount Sinai, even not to worship other gods, uh, that type of thing is not just a temptation of, this is my, my thought, uh, not just a temptation to worship the gods of other nations, I think it's also reflecting upon uh, not making graven images of this one true God that has delivered them out of Egypt. But we'll hang on to that for a moment. Okay. Wasn't he kind of taunting them like a kid? Oh, would yeah. say, a kid would say, my dad is stronger than your dad. Well, there is definitely some. Because he could have believed that there's other gods, but he believed that his was superior and you know you don't stand a chance type thing making fun of them yeah there is definitely some playground um uh, trash talk that's going on in the story that uh, <laughs> shelly is mentioned no doubt about that um what elijah actually thought in relationship to some of the other gods could have been uh uh like shelly said a a putting a, a condemnation on believing something so ridiculous, or it could be what you said, uh, Esty, and that is the belief in the one true God being greater. Uh, there, there's no one that would be able, no matter how many Baal priests there are, to um, to cause Baal to be victorious over Yahweh. But let's hang on to that for a moment. Let's move forward and let's see how some of these this other material kind of fits into this tension. And that's really what it is in some cases in the Old Testament. So um, here's here's kind of the way I look at this. To say that the God of Israel is to be revered above all gods, plural, I don't think this is me, makes a lot of sense if they're if people didn't believe other gods existed. So I think the point of the Psalms is, is making uh, the point that Yahweh is better than any other gods. And part of that is to pull toward allegiance and covenant faithfulness toward this one God who initiated the deliverance and exodus from Egypt. So maybe I want to introduce a new word to you here. Uh, scholars talk a, a lot about how the Psalms demonstrate what is called monolatry, not monotheism. So monolatry is the belief of one God being the superior God above other gods. So one of the reasons this has developed goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. Um, monolatry was well known, not just in Israel, but among uh, other other uh, nations as well. So in these other nations, Baal uh, would be considered the supreme god among the gods, uh, among the Canaanites. So you have a similarity there, I think, in the sense that some of the common narratives that we see in the book of Exodus is a real battle of God, Yahweh, against the Egyptian gods. Each one of the plagues was directed against the belief in a particular type of God in the Egyptian um, uh, culture. Now, to think that the Israelites had been there for almost 400 years in a culture that believed, believed in a variety of different gods river god, storm god, fertility god, so on and so forth, um, I think had a definite impact upon uh, them. When you think about how a culture influences all of us, 
um, we are never very far from the culture we are raised in. And I do think that the fact that the Israelites were in Egypt as long as they were probably filtered into their belief systems. Uh, we see this also in the passage in Exodus where when Moses is up on Mount Sinai too long, um, Aaron uh, makes a golden calf out of the earrings and, and jewelry of the people. So I think all of this is kind of demonstrating that there is this struggle early on in the nation of Israel uh, between the belief in what they think is the the ultimate God uh, and, and other gods that were vying for their attention. You think you see that in different stories where there are individuals in the scripture that are hiding I idols and stuff like that because it's just part of their belief system to believe in a God that uh, demands total allegiance and erasing uh, allegiance to the other gods that they might have believed in for many years was quite a struggle among them. So what, is, which, um, oh, I'm trying to remember which, uh, which of the ladies hid the, hid the idol in the, in the packet, in the, in the backpack in Genesis, slipping my mind, but uh, there's those type of stories as well. So, yeah. Any thought? Rachel? Was it Rachel? Was it Rachel? I'm trying to remember. Could be. Yeah. It's early on in uh it's early on in the uh in the uh, Old Testament for sure. So here you see this bottom line here. When monotheism finally developed, no one went back to erase all the talk of multiple gods. Scholars think that what you have in the Psalms are remnants of a belief at one time that was allowed to stand, that it wasn't edited out for later um, generations that would use the Psalter. But again, these are things that different people have different perspectives on, but I'm sharing with you one that seems to be... Um, suggesting that there is this um there is this belief this strand of belief uh in israel through some of these psalms that i've just showed to you any other thoughts on that okay go to psalm 82 so in psalm 82 this is an interesting psalm, the way it is written. This is, this is designated as a psalm of Asaph. Um, and it begins in verse 1, saying, God resides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. So I want you to imagine with me um, a boardroom. And... You know, it can be complete with, you know, high back chairs, leather chairs, golden nameplates, uh, that whole type of thing. And there's one chairperson, the chairman of the board, and the chairman calls upon the rest of the board members to give an account for the way that they have uh, handled the business. Well, the image of Psalm 82 is presented here as a meeting of upper level executives. So here's an example of a belief in multiple gods with Yahweh being the one true God that is the chairman of the board. So let's read the whole thing and then let's come back to this for a second. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere men. 
you will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Now, again, there's different ways of interpreting this. The gods, small g here, could be represented represented by the kings of the earth, because sometimes they are called gods. Or this could actually be demonstrating an, a belief in a multitude of gods, but Yahweh speaks and holds them to account for some things that they are failing to do. Now, this divine counsel, as it is often called among scholars, is not only featured in the Psalms, but that's the way the book of Job begins. Job um, begins with God stating, have you considered my servant Job? And then here is, is this uh, group of uh, supernatural beings that are in his presence. And one speaks up and says, yeah, he's worshiping you because you're blessing him. If you take away his blessings, then he will curse you to his face. Kind of a very similar scenario here. It's kind of the idea that there is a gathering together. So the concept of this divine council, even though it's not a part of our cultural language, it probably was back then. And um, it's tempting to want to read monotheism back into the text. But if we let it kind of stand in its day and age, what we find, I think, is this type of psalm can is demonstrating God is holding the gods, even though they're not real, yet that's what was believed. He's holding them to account. So maybe we can look at this psalm this way. So when you try to understand the theology of Psalm 82, verse 1 and verse 8, it's the psalmist speaking, okay? Then you're going to notice in verse 2, do you see there's quotation marks beginning in verse 2? Go down to verse 7, you see the other quotation mark. You see that in the text? This is God, Yahweh, speaking. Well, who's he speaking to? It seems as though the psalmist is saying he's speaking to the lesser gods, and they're being held account for not holding up justice. So it could read something like this. God has taken his place among the divine council amid the gods, and God speaks out and says, how long will you, lesser deities, judge unjustly and show partiality? And then it's detailed here. Give justice to the weak, the orphan, maintain the right of the lowly and destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say you are God's children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any priest. Then the psalmist speaks back up and says, Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for the nations belong to you. So the, the psalm, the way it's kind of written, is kind of speaking out of the mouth of God. And what you find is that there is this divine boardroom and the divine boardroom, then God, the one true mighty God is the one that speaks up and says, if you don't hold up justice and these other things, and you're going to die like mere men, which then the contrast is gods to men. So I don't know what 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 you think of this psalm or not, but it's interesting the way it's it's structured here. You have some thoughts on this, anyone? So the council of the gods is kind of like permanently adjourned uh, when God makes the judgment. You will die like mere men, and you will fall like every other ruler in verse seven if you don't uphold these type of values here. So this Psalm, Psalm 82, is really kind of like a prayer for Yahweh to do the things that God should be doing, primarily promoting justice, 
fighting for those on the margins, uh, tearing down the powerful, and so forth. Kind of embedded in this psalm is like a snapshot of the common belief of the day. And, and when we think about how they are trying to figure out the divine, what we're I, I think what we're understanding is we're all in process of doing that. And what will happen is we all think we've got it figured out and then there's something else that happens or uh, and we go, oh, there's a lot more mystery than what we often think. And so they had to kind of progress out of that as they move toward the Old Testament, end of the Old Testament. And there you see a more refined belief in in God as one. Any thoughts on that? So again, like I said at the beginning, you're going to see different things in different psalms. The psalms I've just showed you have this uh, thought about uh, this divine boardroom. Other, um, you know, other, let's take Psalm 23. We've used that several times in this uh, study. The Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's very focused. It's very singular, okay? But you have a variety of different things in some other places. Other Any thoughts, questions? Now, you can push back on anything because it depends on which psalm you kind of find yourself in as to what is going to strengthen a particular perspective. So that's why I said earlier, it's very hard to get a consistent uh, mono, monotheism found from one psalm all the way to the end. Okay, then we're going to go to the, another perspective of the psalmist, not just about how many gods, but what that God is like. So in the Psalms, God is primarily portrayed as a warrior. And that is common in the ancient world. Um, every ancient Near Eastern people thought of God as a warrior. And to go back to what you said, Esty, about uh, Elijah uh, and that story, the idea is our God is a better, more powerful warrior than the other gods. Okay. So here is where there's a problem that begins to creep in here because depicted in a lot of the Psalms, in particular, a type of psalm that's called an imprecatory psalm, the psalmist is praying for God to destroy the enemy, to be violent, uh, to use his warrior-like characteristic uh, to uh, bring, bring down judgment. Now, we just saw some of that in Psalm 82, when it says, you are gods, in verse 6, you are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere men, and you will fall like every other ruler. There is that image there that God brings about a violent end to those who are unjust and evil and wicked. So in the Psalms, there's often celebrations that take place that uh, is celebrating God's um, violent expressions on behalf of them. So when you think about Exodus and uh, the destruction of the firstborn through the 10th plague, that is a characteristic that is found in the Old Testament uh, that God is going to use uh, violence and vengeance uh, to get what he wants. And that was just expected among ancient readers. Um, gods went to war and the good gods were victorious. So the biblical text uh, is, is such that you won't find in the Old Testament much in the way of love your enemies that Jesus teaches. 
It's a whole different world. It's a whole different perspective. So in this particular um, section of the Old Testament, what you're going to find is that divine violence uh, is a perspective that uh, is just common to the belief and culture of that day. We're the ones that trip up over that a little bit. So we think of God's command to exterminate groups of people, in particular the Canaanites and so forth, and not really weigh it seriously to think about how that portrays God, that God is willing to wipe out an entire group of people. So what you find here, I think, is the struggle for uh, how to understand God and what we do with the violence of God in the Old Testament. We can look at different stories that represent that. Uh, obviously, one of the most significant ones is in Joshua chapter 6, when Joshua takes the people across the Jordan River and begins to move into the promised land and uh, come to the battle of Jericho. So in Joshua chapter six, it's interesting that they are led by the Ark of the Covenant and they are told to march around uh, this Canaanite city for six straight days. And on the seventh day, they would blow horns and the walls of the city fell down. Now, here's the problem. What archaeology has actually shown us is Jericho was not really a very big city at all. And that there's really not much archaeological evidence that there was um, this type of extermination of people that um, is stated in Joshua chapter 6. So, one of the things that you deal with in the Old Testament is what is historical and what is propaganda? What was serving the purpose of the nation of Israel at that time? Well, they want to show that God, don't push back on the God of the Israelites. He's too big and too powerful, and he will overwhelm you and he will destroy you. So this becomes a struggle to try to figure out, okay, what's the kernel of truth? Because there is a kernel of truth there, but how much of it is historical? How much of it is more literary or used in a way for particular political purposes? So if you were to look at um, that particular story a little bit closer, you're going to find that even the Bible itself is not consistent on saying what happened there. For example, I'm going to turn, you don't have to, but you can listen to Joshua chapter 11. In Joshua chapter 11, it's interesting that it almost seems as if the claim is being made that um, the entire uh, people, population there, was totally destroyed. So in Joshua 11, 12, it says this, Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword, and he totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had uh, commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds except Hazor, which Joshua burned. And then the Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities but all the people that put to the sword um, until they completely, completely destroyed them, not sparing anything that breathed. Do you get the idea there? I mean, nothing survives. Every Everyone is exterminated. However, in the same book, chapter 23 of Joshua, verse 5, you see a different accounting of this. So in Joshua chapter 23, Verse 5, it says this. Um, it begins as Joshua's farewell in chapter 23. He's about ready 
to pass on. And, um, and so it says in verse one, after a long time had passed and the Lord had given rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then old and well advanced in years, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am old and well advanced in years. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the lands of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Great Sea in the West. Now here it is, verse 5. The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way. He will push them out before you, and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. There's not extermination here. It's talking about how the Lord's pushing them out, uh, driving them from the land. So there's a little bit of inconsistency even with in the book of Joshua as to what happened. Now, this should not trouble us. It only troubles us if you have to have an airtight inerrancy on the Bible. If you if if you don't allow for variance among the different uh, writers, uh, then it becomes an issue. But if you understand that these are uh, books that were evolving, and and what you see is different things happening within them, what you'll find is that. It, these books are not primarily written for historicity purposes. They are written for other purposes, uh, for the later history of Israel. And if that's true, they will often at times embellish certain things as it serves their purpose. Now, why do I say that? You find the same thing in the Psalms a little bit. And when you do, it's you. It's for a particular purpose. Uh, and those that are hearing this type of information didn't think twice about it. Divine violence among the gods was just a common belief. Uh, they would not know how to understand it in any other way. And I think that we all have elements of that in our culture where we understand things in a certain way. And all of a sudden, there's another way of looking at things. So pride month begins tomorrow. And so that binary outlook that ha has happened for so long in culture is slowly giving way to say that that doesn't hold together completely, that we found other evidence scientifically, emotionally, psychologically, and all these other things. And you go, oh, we need to learn from that. And we need to expand our understanding. I, I think that's true for all history. Human beings are always in the process of growing, maturing, and expanding their understanding. So even though they didn't have a problem for divine violence being uh, such an expressive thing by God against people in their world, yet as you get closer to the New Testament, you see that perspective is starting to change. And by the time you get to Jesus, he has a radical different way of looking at these things that was taken for granted back in the Old Testament. Okay, I've wandered around a little bit here, but thoughts on that? So you're gonna find it some other references. You can read Deuteronomy 9, Joshua 13, um, and Judges chapter 2, which is interesting too. So you have Joshua, and then you have Judges. I'll, I will read this one. Um, in Judges chapter 2, verse 23, it says, the Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. So the writer of Judges says, no, they weren't exterminated. Uh, that God allowed those nations to remain, and he didn't drive them out um, by giving them into the hands of Joshua. So you have kind of a multiple perspective on that one historical era. Thoughts on that? The reason I bring that story up is I do think that is the common 
way that many of the psalmists looked at God. Anything? If not, I'm going to have you turn to one more psalm for tonight. Psalm 98. In Psalm 98, this is a psalm that was considered to be a, a victory song. So if you were to read Psalm 98 and you were to read the victory song of the sea that you find in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 15, then you would see there's some common themes between the two. Now, Exodus 15 is the song of the sea, which is sung after God delivers the Israelites through uh, the waters and uh, destroyed the Egyptian army following after them. But listen, this isn't a very long psalm. It's only nine verses. It says, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel, and all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So you're seeing the repetition of the word salvation uh, in these first three verses. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. So this psalm here, not only has a lot of commonality to Exodus 15, it is believed that this is a, a victory song that was often used that when uh, people, they they secured a victory under their, their military, this was the song that was often sung that proclaims God's working of salvation not going to heaven after you die, salvation, deliverance from their enemies. And what you find is here God is demonstrating his military might, and they are praising God uh, for the victory that God has secured for them. So here this song uh, shows a little bit of the theological hand that the psalmists have. God's this warrior, that's what we're talking about right now, and when God wins a battle on their behalf, everyone is to join in and shout for joy. You know, it's sort of the the, the victory um, celebration uh, for the for the success that they experience by God. Uh, so that's just one expression of how they saw God as a warrior. They praise God as a warrior. And uh, they celebrated when they did have victories. And you'll see a lot of that in the Psalms. Uh, you'll find that kind of a, as a thread in some of the other ones as well. So maybe here's what we can do with this. The portrait of God in the Psalms is diverse. It's dramatic. Uh, it's demonstrative of what they believed in that day and age, which was the belief in one powerful God over the other gods and a belief that God was a warrior. So this has led some of the new atheists like Richard Dawkins to say that if this is what God is like, he's this bloodthirsty tyrant. And um, he would say that God is barbaric. And if we were to look only at this and not the movement of where the scriptures are unveiling what God is really like, then that's a legitimate um, criticism. However, 
as you move toward the New Testament, monotheism becomes more dramatic. Then all of a sudden in the life of Jesus, you have him saying that God is his father, number one. Number two, God is Abba. Boy, that's a different perspective than God is a warrior. Abba, father. Jesus's own nonviolent ethic um, is a significant issue. And that is, he did not believe in God in much of the same cultural ways that the psalmist did. He saw God as caring for uh, people, as expressed through his miracles, uh, God noticing um, the creative um, expressions of, of the world around him. He cares for the sparrow. Uh, all those type of uh, images that Jesus used in his teaching ministry. And so you sometimes what people go, they do is they go, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. We worship the God of the New Testament. No, it's the same God, but it's a God in process as it moves toward the life of Jesus. And there seems to be a little bit better clarity as to what God is really like than what they had the ability to do in the ancient Near East. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but um, maybe a way of looking at this is it was just part of their operative cultural context. And when we keep an eye on that, things like divine violence, the expression of multiple of gods, and God being the, the, the chairman of the board over the divine council, then if you take a bottom-up approach, what you'd need to do is not take the New Testament and superimpose it back onto the Old Testament. You see it as a progress that's moving toward clarity. And I think that's probably um, a way of appreciating the things that are culturally embedded in various times that we see in the Old Testament. So... Um, again, not everybody looks at it that way, uh, but they have a theological difficulty seeing how to harmonize a lot of the Old Testament with the God Jesus revealed, uh, if, if you see it as kind of an all-one perspective. And that's, I, I just think it runs into difficulty. But any thoughts or comments on that? Oh, I, ha I have a question. I'm not quite sure how to put it into to words, but it seems to me part of the far-right evangelists, evangel evangelical groups, still look at God as this warrior God. Mm -hmm. I've, I know someone who will pray for God to get their enemies. And it almost seems that the, the ones who are in Congress or Senate or governors of certain states are trying to legislate different peoples out of being. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, I I totally agree. And a lot of the imagery is pulled from the more aggressive, violent representations of God. You know, if you if you use these passages, you could really justify any any expression of violence. I mean, when you think about some of these people that are going back to Leviticus and um, taking some of the laws there, even some of the um, capital punishment expressions mm -hmm. in the book of Leviticus, you would go, oh my goodness gracious, this is, this is inhumane, you know, uh, but again, if you don't see that progress moving toward Jesus, then, you know, you can take these verses as a justification by cherry picking the particular verse you need to justify the legislation or whatever that you want. And I think we're in the thick of it, Shelley. I really agree with you wholeheartedly there that 
the especially the evangelical church has become not an expression of the love of God, but of the of the the violence and hatred directed toward different people. And um, I just think it's I just think it's uh, dangerous, and I think it's a shame, you know, that this has been allowed to happen. Well, I've heard it said, you know, Katrina was a judgment on Louisiana and the AIDS epidemic was a judgment on the gay community. You yeah. know, and these are normally intelligent people <laughs> that are saying these things. But they're just taking the vengeance of God and putting it where they want it to be. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you 100%. I think that it's just one of those things where people, and everybody does this. Okay, so let me, while we talk, let's get everybody back on the screen here. Um, everybody cherry, cherry picks the Bible. Everybody does. But some of them are more dangerous than others. And I think that's where you have to be cautious of allowing people to cherry pick certain things out of certain books and saying it's in the Bible. Well, yeah, there's a lot of things in the Bible, but, you know, they don't all carry equal weight. And uh, especially in light of the teachings of Jesus. So. Yep, I agree. Other thoughts that you have? And, you know, the diversity of perspective of God in the Psalms is equally met with the diversity of the perspective of human beings in the Psalms. So next week, I want to show you that um, in the Psalms, mankind is seen as princes or worms. That's a pretty, that's a pretty diverse perspective, you know? So um, again, depending upon what the individual psalmists are doing within their, uh, their writing, I think we have a better understanding of how and why they're using some of the imagery they are. But any questions, comments? Okay, well, then we'll kind of close off and uh, then you can say those words to get the dog <laughs> in your face, okay? Thanks, so thank you, Larry. <laughs> okay, you're welcome. There he goes. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Have a great night. Good night. Good night. <laughs>